back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. It's the week of July 19th, 2021. I'm your host, James Huang. I'm once again recording at Boulder Gruppetto, and I'm here with pro mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad, aside from it being very hot still. It's very hot. Uh, also joining us, as usual, is tech editor Dave Rome, who apparently will not be leaving Sydney anytime soon. How are things, Dave? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's week three or seven or something of, of lockdown and, uh, I'm wearing a beanie at the moment, not necessarily because it's cold, which it is, but because, uh, three weeks ago before we went into lockdown, I needed a haircut and that has, that situation has not improved. <laughs> and how many weeks have you been under lockdown now? Uh, I, I've lost count, but I think it, we're at three now and our numbers are still going up somehow. So uh yeah it'll it'll be this way for a while sounds fun yeah excellent so so no long bike rides for you for the near future i'm pretty lucky where i'm where i'm situated i can i can get on the bike and we're allowed a 10 kilometer radius so you can kind of loop up a bunch of things and ride as far as you want it's not too bad as long as you don't mind repeating yourself a bit and that is but uh yeah i'm pretty lucky i've got mountain biking straight out the door so i've got i'm covered Alternatively, it may be time to load you up on a bunch of uh, Zwift hardware and indoor stuff to try uh, to to test. No thanks, things aren't that dire. <laughs> mm, okay, okay, we'll see. We'll check out. We'll check in with you in, in another couple of weeks and see how desperate you are. Anyway, we have an outstanding show for you today. As always, uh, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of different handlebar types on mountain bikes, the explosion of oversized rear derailleur pulley cages, not literally. <laughs> the issue of consumer <laughs> the issue of consumerism versus sustainability in the cycling world. And then we'll have a pretty in-depth discussion about internal versus external cable riding, again, because it's warranted, uh, before we wrap up this week's show with yet another round of Ask a Mechanic. With that, let's just go ahead and get right into it here. First up in the news, uh, Surly, it's a small component division of U.S. distributor of quality bicycle parts. Uh, they just released a really intriguing handlebar called the corner bar, uh, which allows you to basically install a dirt drop style handlebar, handlebar on your mountain bike while using the same controls, uh, which is significant because drop handlebars essentially force you to use road controls usually, which makes for a very expensive conversion. Uh, the claim benefits are the same as usual, you know, more hand positions, more natural wrist positions, et cetera, et cetera. What do we think about this? Because I feel like we have been heading back toward the John Tomac days for quite a while here. And, and that's certainly like, you know, that comment comes up a lot with some of the burlier gravel bikes. Uh, and, and we are continuing, continuing to muddy the waters a bit here. I mean, these handlebars are very surly. Like if you look at their lineup. They're so surly. They fit right in. Um, like personally, it's not a product for me, but I'm sure there's going to be someone out there that's super pumped about these. Whether it's bike packing or trying to make a mountain bike a gravel bike or the opposite way or whatever you want to do someone will be stoked on these bars. So, so yeah, my take on the handlebar is that say you're trying to convert a, an existing or an older mountain bike into a modern gravel bike, like a road oriented gravel bike, this isn't going to do it for you because it's not going to give you that sort of hood handlebar position that you're going to use the most where this handlebars really are pitched, I guess is, is more the bike packing and real off-road centric style of riding. So where you might uh, end up using a mountain bike for mountain biking purposes, but you might have a lot of road riding to get to the trails. Um, this is kind of where they're pitching that bar. It's it's very wide. It's got a lot of flare in the drops, uh, but yeah, notably doesn't have a, a hood style position on the handlebar. It's really just, you got the flats and then you got the drops. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they have instructions on their blog on how you can kind of sort of replicate a hood position, but it's very, very much like a like a cobbled together. So like it, it's like a chunk of foam underneath the handlebar tape. I mean, that's, that's the thing with me. Like on a gravel bike or a road bike, basically any bike with drop bars, you're riding in the hoods 99% of the time. So this is very much not but, going to be the replacement for that. Yeah, although I, I wonder if that's why they've intentionally built it with very, very little drop. Yeah, um, totally. So, I mean, it seems like that would make sense because normally with a flat handlebar on a mountain bike, you're inherently sitting a little bit more upright. And then if you were to have, what is it, like 80 millimeters of drop or something, it, it, I, I kind of wonder if it puts you in the right position. Um, I mean, this thing is, is clearly not necessarily like a quote-unquote performance item. I mean, it's chromoly. It's like 700 grams or something. It's quite heavy. Um, it's relatively inexpensive. It's 100 bucks. I mean, it's not cheap. That seems um, expensive for a steel handlebar. Well, I, th I think it's mostly just because, like, my guess is that the volumes are very, it's gonna very low. It's going to make, like, 15 of them. It's a lot I mean, of steel. <laughs> it's a lot. Of, well, it's a lot of steel, and they're probably paying an awful lot in freight to get them over here yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, I kind of wish they made it in aluminum, though, just because I'd imagine the price wouldn't be all that different, and it would probably be half the weight. It's also not, they don't do it in 31.8, correct? Very odd. Yeah, it's 25.4, which, which is kind of odd. I think that's kind of cool though, because it's like they've really understood the market here, which is, you know, a lot of people are going to be converting old bikes. Old. You know, yeah. and that, and that, the fact that they made that 25.4 means you, in theory, if you got a bike from the early 2000s or even older, you might not need to replace it, even the stem. You can just bolt it on. And then they're also giving the the problem solvers uh, adapters. If you do have a 31.8 stem, they're, they're, gonna, they're giving you the shims as well. So they've kind of got both bases covered there. Right. But either way, I mean, I think, I think Surly's got a pretty good handle on who their customer is and what their market is. I mean, they, like you said earlier, Zach, I mean, this is very much a Surly product. It's very, very much in their wheelhouse. Um, yeah, uh, and yeah, I suspect they'll actually probably do okay with it, and I wouldn't be surprised if an aluminum version came out a little bit later. All right, well, at the far opposite end of the pricing uh, at the pricing spectrum is Absolute Black's rather crazy new seven hundred dollars US, one thousand dollars Australian hollow cage oversized rear derailleur pulley cage, which uses a single-sided carbon fiber cage, ceramic bearings to reduce to reduce friction, of course and a pretty dramatic-looking hollow oversized lower bearing reminiscent of Josh Ogle's oversized design that I wrote about a few weeks ago that you can normally get on Fireflies. Uh, Dave, what else is Absolute Black claiming here? You're, you really made it sound more expensive than it is. It's only 700 US dollars. <laughs> I know you're saying a 1,000 Australian makes it sound like out-of-this-world expensive, but it is only 700 US dollars, not, not <laughs> including the derailleur. Which makes it so much better. I mean, you do yeah. get two pulley uh, two pulleys, though, right? So you do get two pulleys. Um, yeah, I mean, so what ceramic speeds OSPW that people always complain about? It's four hundred dollars. But for comparison, I believe about that. Yeah, so this is only seven hundred dollars. It's not too bad. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> basically, what you get is well, for now, it's only it's only for Shimano Altegra and Durace current eight thousand nine nine uh, ninety one hundred generation components uh they will be doing other fitments but they haven't really released details on what those are or when we'll see them uh but yeah it's it's very much in the same vein as like the the sort of trend that um burner cages originally kicked off and then um ceramic speed are really brought to more of a mass market where you've got um yeah a, a larger size pulley wheel which is designed to reduce the amount of chain articulation so that's where a lot of the savings come from uh absolute black are claiming that 
everyone does that and those savings are over quote overstated and their their savings actually come from lower chain tension so lower tension on the lower span of the chain uh and also improved ability to handle varying chain lines um I did have issue with that claim about the lower chain tension because uh, I've tested that the, be the case ceramic with all the speed other ones anyway. Yeah, I've tested the ceramic speed OSPW and on its lowest setting, uh, lowest spring setting, uh, which absolute black claims they're lower than that. Um, my chain was just flopping everywhere. It's not gonna shift well. It doesn't shift well, but more importantly, you hit a bump and you can just hear your chain smack into your chain stay, and you're at risk of dropping a chain at that point. So. Um, I did have issue with that claim, but but yeah, basically it's it's very much a similar vein to an OSPW, but they they are claiming that their their cage has some inbuilt flex, which allows it to handle varying chain lines, and that they're saving watts in other ways to the competitors, um, which is kind of funny because you know as far as pulley cages go, in my experience, it's the cages that are stiffer. That shift better. Correct? Yeah, yeah, and that's yep. that's kind of the the common theory. Uh, Absolute Black, they're they're kind of debating that. They they're suggesting that uh, a stiffer cage doesn't necessarily make um, the shift better. It's all about that top the guide pulley, the top pulley wheel, and how that interacts with the chain. So they've made that pulley wheel very stiff, and they've made the teeth noticeably tall, so it actually holds onto the chain. Um, and, and that kind of makes sense because if you look at a ceramic speed OSPW, which shifts okay, um, it does actually have a very shallow tooth profile, um, which doesn't really hold on to the chain all that much. Um, so, you know, in the, and that's like when you're shifting and the derailleur's moving sideways, there's not a whole lot to pull that chain with it. Um, so their, their claims there kind of, you know, make a bit of sense, but yeah, I guess it remains to be seen how well this thing shifts. And I guess this is something I put in the article, but you know, they're claiming that this thing matches Durace, a stock Durace derailleur in terms of shift quality, and it beats its competition. But this is also coming from the company that makes oval chain rings. Yeah. And, I mean, and, to and, me, yeah. To me, at $700, this isn't like a, this isn't a performance part that you put on your racing bike. This is a, a showpiece that you put on your really expensive bike to do a coffee shop ride on and say, ooh, look what I have. Um, I mean, like, even the ceramic speed ones at, quite a bit cheaper still like for real racing you're gonna crash and like for the price of this you could have you could buy an extra derailleur for backup when you inevitably <laughs> crash and rip it off yeah like, i mean i think if you're trying like time trial or road where you really care about saving a few watts like the oversized pulleys are great but i don't yeah this one to me it's it's definitely just more of a showpiece rather than a practical and it item. does look cool yeah, it looks super. It's definitely it's from Absolute Black. It's like, look what we can do. We can CNC machine all this. It's really cool and sweet, um, and it costs seven hundred dollars. <laughs> One thing I am kind of intrigued about is the kind of what they're claiming as far as noise, um, because they have taken that upper pulley and kind of suspended it on this. Kind of looks like like a couple of O rings or something. Yeah. It's not. I'm curious if that works. From yeah, I mean, uh, they haven't gotten into too much detail about it. Apparently, it is patent pending that idea. But from what I can tell, it's not too different to what SRAM did with their uh, original X Dome cassettes, where they had like sort of the silencing rubber rings that just sort of dampen the noise. That's kind of the vibe I get from it. I think it's that that type of design, that idea. Um, but yeah, they're claiming a 60% reduction in noise compared to a, a stock Durace derailleur, which. 
Yeah, I wouldn't have I mean, thought so. There's that much room to move to get out of uh, you know that much noise to get out of a stock durace trailer. So I mean, I would say in a stock durace trailer with the plastic pulleys is pretty quiet. Pretty quiet. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, they've certainly made some huge claims with this uh, with this pulley wheel. They've they've claimed that it's more aer- aerodynamic than a, a stock durace trailer. Um, although they did qualify that by saying the differences are so small that it's basically just no difference. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, but it's more arrow, but it's more arrow, but I mean, it's practically more difference, but it's, it's still not, better. not measurable, but it's more arrow. Yeah. That's basically, yeah. Which is shocking when you consider that there's a giant hole in it, right? Like it's, you know, it's got like this flat sided hole in it. So they've made some claims there that you kind of question, but at the same time, I'm sure they have done research where their research shows that these things to be true for them. I mean, it's cool. Like yeah. it looks sweet. It does look cool, yeah. But like the person putting on that that on their bike is not buying it because it's more aero. No, they're buying it because it's seven hundred dollars and it looks cool. Exactly, well, and, and probably for an extra. <laughs> so I feel dollars. like that's what their marketing should be. Not, instead of putting all these like kind of bullshit like marketing lines that are like it's more aero, but not really. Just say it's it really cool. <laughs> Put it on your bike; it's gonna look sweet. Like. Just own it. What I mean, it is. And personally, I feel like they kind of missed a, a grand opportunity here by leaving that huge open space in that lower pulley. Because I mean, you could put a, lo- a logo in there. You could have like some sort of customized thing in there. Like you can make it like disc shaped and to call it like you know, it's a lenticular disc for more aerodynamics. That's uh, opportunity lost. An electric, uh, an electromagnetic motor. Um, what else? You could store. Up, you could store a whole bunch of twenty thirty two uh, coin cell batteries in there. <laughs> some mints. Mm. All the options, <laughs> all the options. So I mean, it's cool. All right. Well, either way, I mean, I think I think it's safe to say that we are sufficiently intrigued by this thing, uh, but maybe not enough for us to go buy one. Um, that said, I suspect there will be plenty of takers nonetheless, because that's kind of how the world works. Um, but in relation to that, uh, it kind of reminds me of my most recent JRA column that I wrote on Cycling Tips the other day. Um, that that asks some questions about consumerism versus sustainability in general. Um, and I think this thing is sort of a prime example of that. And what prompted all of this for me is um, the, the folks at Velocio, sorry, Velocio, that's apparently the, officio, the, official, the official pronunciation from Brad Sheehan, Velocio. Uh, the folks at Velocio Clothing asked me over the winter to be a guest on a video um, that they were putting together on, on the whole sustainability versus kind of consumerism uh, specifically in the context of cycling clothing, uh, seeing as how they are a cycling clothing company. Um, but yeah, so you, you, could ra- you could certainly raise the same question about all sorts of other cycling stuff we'd buy and general everyday stuff for that matter. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- those questions like, you know, do we really need these things that we're buying? Are we considering the, the product's longevity or serviceability slash maintenance or repairability when ma- making these buying decisions? And you know, how many of us are considering what sort, of, what sort of resources are required to make something and what happens to it when we're done with it? Um, Zach, I am actually kind of particularly curious what you see here at Boulder Group Petto because we are in Boulder. I think we are certainly not the, a sort of typical cycling town. I think we are, I think it's safe to say we are, you know, the clientele here is probably at the pointy end as far as, you know, being up to date on latest performance and stuff like that. But what do you see in your own clientele as far as what people importance in i mean like i mean obviously everything the trend is is lighter faster stronger and all everything's all electronic shifting and hydraulic brakes and internal everything um which i think like 
from a performance standpoint, all of that stuff is great. I do think like, particularly with the electronic drivetrains and I'm, I think your stuff works great and I'm not going to argue that like it works really, really, really well. Um, but from a like long-term standpoint, it's kind of just made to be disposable. Like look at first gen DI2, it's maybe what, 10 years old. And like you can't now, I think you can't, you've not been able to get service parts for those for at least five plus years. And like even first gen ETAP is hard to get, to get stuff cause they're so invested in access on the SRAM side. And like you can take a 20 year old bike with mechanical shifting and it has been sitting and whatever, and you clean it up, put new cables and housing on it and it works, but you can't do that with an old electronics group set. So to me, like from an environmental standpoint, like the electronics is just not great cause it's just made to be disposable essentially. Like a bike's not, not supposed to last more than five years at the very most. Um, and then it goes in the garbage. I mean, I guess we can, we can talk about, you know, Mike better, our, our social media guy. He, he was on a first generation Dura-Ace DI2 equipped bike for quite a long time. And it got to the point where the pivots were also sloppy on that thing that it just didn't really work all that great anymore, if I remember correctly. I mean, that's not necessarily a, an electronic specific thing, but you know. No, but like a, a comparable aged mechanical group set, you could buy a replacement trailer. That would be still compatible. Keep, still compatible, keeps working. Like every generation of electronic group set that comes out, there's a new wireless something or a different connector or Firmware. something like something to make it not compatible with the previous generation. Um, so to me, like, yeah, like I said, stuff works really, really well, but I would, yeah, I would like to see more backwards compatibility or support for older products. But how often do you have to break the news to someone that, you know, this latest and greatest thing that they bought not too long ago also carries with it just, you know, potentially some astronomical service uh, charge on it because it's not meant to be repaired or worked on or something like that? Or how often do you have to tell someone that they just have to replace something because they can't repair it because something is just a little bit outdated now? I mean, for sure, quite a, pretty frequently, I would say. Like, yeah. I mean, especially when, like, all the, the E-Tube stuff came out and the Shimano didn't support the previous, I don't remember what they call it, the first-gen DI2 stuff for very long at all. And there are a lot of bikes that people had like I crashed, I broke my derailleur or I need a new wiring kit or something. And it was like, sorry, the only way to get this is basically going on eBay. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think this is specific to, to electronic though, because if you look at, if you've got a 10 year old road bike with a uh, 10 speed mechanical and your shifters die, uh, like last time I checked, it might be different in the U S but it's impossible to find a suitable 10 speed shifter uh to replace you know to keep that group set running because the only 10 speed shifter that shimano is still producing is tiegra and that's running a different pull ratio so you're you're basically stuck with like back on ebay as you say so it's it's not that different of a scenario that i guess just you know the industry has this like this this time period this window where you know after five years or eight years they stop supporting the product and then at that point it is a it is a redundant product that they've kind of forced consumerism onto you, if in, you know, in case of wear or, or tear or damage. Um, so I think, yeah, the electronics is definitely a, perhaps exaggerating it, but I think it applies across almost everything from what I've seen. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, it's not just bicycle specific, like no. across the board, everything is this way. Um, but, you know, certainly in the automotive world, I feel like they do a better job of this. Like I, you know, my, my wife and I recently bought an old, old 40 Conaline van just to use on like weekend camping trips and that sort of thing. And it is 27 years old 
and I can still get parts for it. Like I can totally. go to any number of online sources and I bought like a steering linkage kit and some other stuff the other day. And not only was it available from a variety of sources, but it was fairly inexpensive and easy to source and I can get tools for it and like I can fix that at home. Yeah. I cannot do that on a bike that is potentially five or seven years old. But the question that I want to present to, uh, to, to you two, Dave and Zach, is you know, we all know that there are issues as far as kind of long-term repairability and serviceability for a lot of the parts that are, that are introduced and a lot of bikes and whatever that are, that are coming out um, or have already come out. The question is, what do we do about it? I mean, aside from just, I guess, I guess is this what we do about it? Just kind of raise the issue so that people are aware that they need to think about this sort of thing? I mean, I would like to at least see when a, com when a company comes out with a new X product, at least acknowledge like this is not compatible. We apologize. We're going to support the previous product for this long rather than just like kind of brushing that aside and being like, look at our new product. It's great. Buy it. Like just at least acknowledge, I would say. But like, I don't know, like an older road bike is still great and still works just fine. But like personally, I don't want to ride a five-year-old mountain bike that's been like suspension and brakes and everything like Hop it just whips. doesn't last that long like i don't want like so i understand that things aren't designed to last forever but i think just some acknowledgement of what we came out with before maybe it wasn't as good and this is a new product we're sorry if you've invested and bought four wheel sets for this previous bike like yeah i don't know there's not not a great solution for it but yeah, I think uh, as Zach said, like you know, uh, providing so long long term support uh, for for older components is is kind of quite important here. And I think in turn, uh, buying right the first time is more important. So you know, there's there's some brands that have proven themselves time and time again that they do support their old products, and that when they come out with a new product, they work out how to, I guess, keep it in line with the old product. That the old product remains you know forward compatible or whatever. So. And these brands typically don't come cheaply either because, you know, that the design required there is generally more complex than just starting fresh again. So I think that's that's a big thing here that, you know, buy less. But if you are going to buy, buy something that's actually designed to to last into the future and that, yeah, the company has a history in, in providing that uh, ability to keep it running. So one brand that comes to mind immediately is, is Chris King. They do this amazingly well. Like if you've got a... A headset from the 1990s from them you can still buy all the service parts for that and that you can't say the same about many other brands in cycling that do that uh i think it's i think companies like that should be supported more for their for their efforts to keep products lasting and to keep products serviceable for sure james what do you think on this i mean <laughs> i think i i know part of the reason why parts availability is so different in the automotive industry is that there are laws dictating how long a company has to support an item for. Um, and my understanding is there are, I think there are similar requirements in the bicycle industry, if I understand correctly, but the time, the time frames for those are much, much shorter. Um, again, I have to kind of go back and refresh my memory on this, but I feel like in my head, I, I remember, I remember reading somewhere that it was maybe like five years or something like that, but it's, it's not very long. It's I mean, so even right now it's a different situation, but like, Companies can't even provide support for their current line of products. Right. But they're supposed to. And they, it's, yeah. not, it's not for lack of desire. Or like not, it's not because they're not supposed to. Yeah. yeah. The automotive thing is also interesting because it's, um, you know, there's money to be had in supporting older vehicles, right? So that's why you get, you know, even when the OE manufacturers themselves stop providing parts, 
all these other smaller companies still are around to provide these very very specific components that are vehicle specific and i feel like in cycling there's kind of there's so much uh the norm is just to move on to the next new thing that there's no real demand for companies to exist to provide support to older products you know it could be that someone like microshift could could create a shifter that works with uh older shimano 10 speed components but the demand from consumers for that product is not all that great it's not doesn't make the best business case so you know i think it does have to also come from consumers that they show more um uh you know consolidarity in terms of supporting each other and wanting to keep their old bikes running as opposed to always just moving forward and moving on to the next new thing yeah i mean i think like from a not necessarily a component part or component part of it but like the whole bike like a road bike i think is a good example like previous to disc you could have a 30 year old frame and put a modern group set on it to keep the bike keep it going like and it was fine and yeah it was fine it worked great and it was awesome and i think like having like road bikes had the standard of this is the the rear hub is 130 it's quick release this is where the brake mounts go parts were fully compatible and now with disc brakes every company is basically not like we're starting to get there but like with axle changes and brake mount changes and some companies have specially offset rear wheel like just make the frames all standard so that when your group set does wear out and let's say you can't get parts for that group set, you can buy a new group set that will then fit on the older frame. Like just kind of standardizing things would be nice. Yeah. There's a hundred percent a designed redundancy issue in, in cycling. Uh, and you can see that every, every new generation of bikes, you know, the most recent one was, you know, as you say, rim brake to disc brake, which basically made everyone else's old bikes redundant for, for upgrading to the new technology. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's just one symptom, I guess, of, of what's happening here. It's, it's certainly, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, I think like what you were saying though, I think like buying, buying something that's quality and is going to last longer. I think that's the better, like the best tactic for this rather than buying like, Oh, this set of thousand dollar carbon wheels is great. They're going to ride well, but the hubs are going to explode and you're not going to be able to get parts because it's some generic hub that isn't serviceable. Like and I would, like let's say using that as an example, either buy a nicer carbon wheel set that has nicer parts that you can service and everything, save your pennies until you do that, or get a nice aluminum wheel set for the same price that has, because the rim is cheaper, that has a nicer hub, and then that's serviceable. Like a nice aluminum wheel set compared to a cheap carbon wheel set, performance is going to be pretty similar. Um, yeah, and it's going to last a lot longer and be serviceable. Yeah, like, yeah, specifically wheels, you know, yeah, buying wheels that have fairly standardized spokes is a big thing, right? So you can, you know, you can service that in 20 years time because a standardized spoke is not going to go anywhere, but a proprietary aluminum spoke uh, spoke would or will, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've got a set of, set of Arsis wheels here in front of me and yeah, good luck finding spokes for those. Yep. So yeah. Anyway, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot to cover here. This could be its own podcast series um but uh, yeah could, but yeah like you know the industry can do a lot more and i think consumers can also do a lot more with their purchase decisions well either way this is a drum that we are going to continue to beat for the foreseeable future so stay tuned for more we'll keep talking about it um last bit of news or discussion before we, we do our ask a mechanic segment um we recently dropped my review of allied's new echo convertible road slash gravel bike 
Uh, and while the bike's adjustable geometry is obviously its main reason for being, um, a lot of the chatter in the comment section and on the Velo Club Slack channel has actually revolved around the cable routing. Um, so it, in stock form, basically, that bike features Allied's own method for fully concealing the cables up front. Um, it includes a proprietary stem, a hole in the steer tube, and compatibility only with uh, electronic drivetrains. But uh, as Allied revealed to me after the review went live, just a little annoying, uh, and after I'd already asked them about this a few weeks ago, uh, it turns out that you can do a more conventional, partially external routing setup that uses a totally standard stem, totally standard, totally standard handlebar, regular compression plug, like as, as normal as could be, round steering tubes, so on and so forth. Um, so most of the commenters, both on the article and in the Slack channel, were really happy to learn about that option, as was I. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, fully hidden cabling seems to be where the majority of the buying public wants to be or expects to see anyway. Um, so much so that someone actually sent me a forum post on the Weight Weenies uh, blog, or Weight Weenies forum, Dave, you may have seen this as well, um, that appears to show a bike shop in Taiwan that is custom modifying bikes that are not meant to be fully internally oh, routed up front, uh, and they're modifying them by <laughs> drilling holes in the steer tube. No. And shaving down steer no. tube walls. Please so that, don't do this. Yes, yes. No. This appears to be happening. This is a There's bad photo, idea. photo I've, evidence. I've, I once worked in a shop that used to drill holes in Pinarellos to make them DI2 ready. But um, but that's different to drilling steer tubes. Yeah, yeah I mean... Are you sure they're not just posting photos of bikes just that don't have cables? No, no, no. I mean, it... it it certainly did not seem to be that way. They this posted pictures of two idea. complete bikes. Uh, one was a giant, a current, current generation giant TCR. Another one was a uh, was a specialized. Athos. Like if you want internal cables that bad, just buy a different bicycle. Like it's not worth. Or just run, si or just run single speed and take off your brakes. Yeah, It'll be safer. Well, yeah. So either it's way, it's not worth like losing <laughs> your face when everything snaps in half. First of all, uh, just just to be perfectly clear, absolutely hundred percent, do not do this at home. Do not drill holes. And do in not take your bike to a bike shop that's doing this. Do not take your shop, bike to a bike shop that is doing this. If anyone suggests to you that like, oh, this is really easy to do. You just have to like shave down the compression plug and shave off a little steering tube, drill a hole. No, it's a terrible idea. Don't do it. I can speak from firsthand experience that replacing your teeth is very unpleasant. Don't do it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Zach, has anyone ever asked you to do something like this? Like, has anyone been so offended by the exposed cabling on their bike? That no, I mean, I would like, can you similar, that? similar to Dave, like when DI2 was first coming out and bikes weren't, weren't readily, uh, they didn't have internal, yeah, at they all. weren't ready for internal DI2 cables. Like there was definitely some like drilling holes and frames and stuff, but that was very much like very small holes talking to the manufacturer. Like, where is it safe to drill these holes? Um, not drilling holes in steer tubes and filing things and no that's that's yeah don't mess with steer tubes not a good idea yeah and to be to be clear i mean yes there are bikes that have fully internal routing that do have holes in the steer tubes but those holes are engineered to be there and they're they're reinforced yeah it's not just somebody it's, with a drill in their garage yeah going at someone it. someone didn't just you know <laughs> bore a hole in there with a dremel uh yeah. very very different thing but so but anyway coming back to this internal routing thing I mean, that was one of my main criticisms of that bike is like, you know, it locked you into this, you know, proprietary stem and kind of like weird headset preloaded adjustment and everything. And it turns out you don't have to have any of that, um, which, like I said, makes me super happy because, you know, that is absolutely the trend where all these bikes are going. I know we have talked about this before. Um, and, you know, there is, again, the acknowledgement that most people who are buying these as complete bikes are never going to have to deal with it 
I mean, at least on a day-to-day basis. No. But coming back to this thing that we were just talking about with serviceability and repairability and everything, um, I mean, the other day I posted a picture of a test bike that showed up that, you know, the, the bars weren't installed because everything had to be internally routed. I had to feed the wires through and everything. I mean, what should have been really kind of like a 10-minute job turned out to be a several-hour job. Um, I still had to trim the hoses and, like, do a little bleeding and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, a, a bunch of people commented from shops who were talking about how they've had to break the news to customers that, you know, sorry, you know, replacing that upper headset bearing is actually going to be about four hours of labor and it's going to cost you like $300. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Zach, how often do you have to, yeah. How often have you had to break that sort of news to somebody? I mean, I think that I am a little on the lucky side with what I do here. Um, I don't have like the full swath of clientele that a normal bike shop sees. And most everyone here is towards the higher end of things. So people, people are coming to me cause they want it done right. They're not going to be like, Oh, I have to replace my brake hoses because my headset's bad. Like, they're like, Oh, okay. That's what has to be done. Um, usually it's not a, a terrible bad news thing or it's like a triathlon bike and they're like, here, it needs this done to it by tomorrow. But well, no, most of the, like, or they're like, but I know this bike's terrible to work on. So do what you need to do. <laughs> Like most of the people that I work with are pretty good when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I could like totally see someone bought a whatever bike with internal cable routing, has no idea, takes it to their local bike shop because it has some issue. And all of a sudden the bill is way higher than it used to be for their previous bike. Um, and that could be kind of upsetting for sure. It's quite it's quite amusing that the topic before was about, uh, you know, um, unnecessary waste and all and now we're talking about to replace a headset bearing i just you know just a casual you know throw away the brake hoses and run some new brake fluid through which is uh you know semi-toxic mechanical and uh yeah everything everything's fine otherwise um yeah i mean this is this is a perfect example of how modern design is creating more waste um and more redundancies right yeah i mean i guess point being with me bringing this up specifically is it didn't really take a whole lot for Allied to be able to offer the ability to run both styles of cable riding. They already had their, their cable port that they had already included in the top of the down tube so you could run cables through there. Um, the only difference is, you know, if you, have, if you want to run external wiring or external hoses, then you have to request a hole in the fork crown, which presumably they have already accounted for in the engineering and carbon layup and everything. So why can't other companies do this? I mean, I think so. They do. I mean, well, Cervelo Aspero 5 does this. But it's, it's still very, very rare, though. Like, you can't do this on most other frames. Most other frames, if they are fully internal, you are totally locked in to fully internal. So I would say, in my, my point of view and my opinion, I would rather not have bikes that have dual routing. I would rather a bike, it's either fully internal or it's fully external, like, that company and those engineers, like I want all of their attention to make the cable routing as best as it can be, not not mediocre for both ways. Yeah, there's compromises, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was you the know, same. Do, but, yeah. yeah. It was the same as when bikes, it was mechanical shift cables. It was like you could run them externally or on some bikes you had the option of running them internally. And it was like, okay, well, neither option is good anymore because you've you've made these compromises to make it be able to do both. So I would, I would rather a bike company focus on making it fully internal and doing it really really good job of that or making it external and also doing a good job of that well let me ask you this zach who does a really good job of it uh, who does a really good job of, of fully internal routing that you can that you can think of i mean i would say anyone that uses a normal round steer tube 
is good for safety reasons. You're not having these weird compaction layers where there's like complicated shapes to make in high quantities of steer tubes. So I think like Specialized does a good job with this because they use a, an oversized headset bearing on the top so that you can run the, the uh, cables through instead of a normal size headset bearing and then also having the steer tube be like a D-shaped or like a zigzag cut in it or whatever. Um, and then I would say like, I mean, not to rag on them, but the FSA vision system, I really, really don't like. Basically any of them that go, that route the hoses through the inside of the stem, I just really can't get on board with that. Like I want to be able to take the bars off and still have enough slack that I can rotate them around to travel with or that I can take the bars off and take a cover off the bottom of the stem and swap out to a stem length. Yeah. Or, or adjust stem height, right? Because the, the FSA kind of locks you into being at the top of that steerer. Yeah, and a bike like that one, the FSA too is like, let's say you're like, oh, I want to try putting my stem down a five mil spacer. You can't do that without cutting the steer tube on their setup. And a lot of smaller companies that maybe don't have the necessarily like they're a big engineering or R&D budget are just kind of taking this FSA open option and using that. And I really am not a fan. Not to not to rag on them, but don't like it. I, I agree. Yeah. The the ability not to be able to put um like spaces above the stem with that system is a real deal breaker for me. Um, you know, like it's I really, you know, my, personally I, I spend, you know, a few weeks going up and down in bar height normally with my bikes to figure out the best the best fit for me and, you know, the the optimal hand, handling of the bike and a system that prevents me from doing that without cutting the steerer tube is is a big no no. Uh, I I would I wouldn't want to invest in that. Yeah, I mean, especially like a company sending you like you or James to test a bike, like you can't drop the the stem down without cutting it. Like even just to ride it for a week or something, and that's just not great. Right, because the 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 idea that all of these bikes need to be you know very carefully and professionally fitted and then adjusted at the expense of multiple hours and hundreds of dollars and so on and so forth. It just seems ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's another, like, talking about fit. I would say, like, a lot of bikes you can build up kind of steer tube at the max, whatever, like how a bike would come out of the box at a normal bike shop that you can then take it to a bike fitter and the bike fitter can adjust things enough to get you in the position, not a bike that, like, well, we think your stem should be lower, but I'm a bike fitter, so I cannot do this. Like, something that restricts a bike fitter from doing their job or a bike, like some tri bikes, I'll do builds and basically build the back half so that you can sit on the bike and pedal, but not run anything up front because you're going to have to play around with the front end position. And you can't do that until, like with the cables routed, you can't do that. Um, coming back to this cable routing thing, Zach, you know, you said that you would much rather have a company dedicate their, their resources to really doing internal routing well than having a compromised double system yeah i guess i would challenge that and say that i would much rather see a company spend the resources to offer both options well i mean i would rather just all be external but i mean that's not well right (laughs) but i mean this is not going to happen anytime in the near future but i remember um i mean zach correct me if i'm wrong but um you know, felt for a while on their road bikes, they were offering a dual internal or external. Yeah, setup the, or, whatever their aero road bike was yeah, called. Yeah, the AR, I think. Yeah. Uh, they may have offered it on the F too. But anyway, they you had the ability to run the wire and hose inside the frame. Or if you were running a mechanical drivetrain, you could use that same access port and bolt on a set of housing stops. The, I mean, the wires, the cables would then be running outside of the frame, which yeah. to me is 
perfectly acceptable. Um, but it was a good system, I yeah. thought. It I worked mean, well like, and cable routing paths were good. Like I said, there are exceptions. Some companies do a really good job with this. But the bulk of them, prior to cables being routed through handlebars and stems and headsets, like most companies did internal cable routing for internal shift cable routing quite bad. Like putting bad bins and things. Like Agreed. if we can't get mechanical shift cable routing dialed, like I don't want to see you trying to do multiple different ways of road well, no, routing. But now what they do is they just run a wire, so you don't have to deal yeah. with it. But like, yeah, I want it to be done well regardless. I don't, yeah. I, I, but like, 100% I agree with you on that. that app, no question. I think, but well, yeah, sorry. I, I would just like to see a little bit more, a little bit more freedom because we see, we see in a lot of these, the discussions on this, on our Slack channels, you know, we see a lot of times people talking about, I absolutely would love to buy X bike, except this feature is a deal breaker. And oftentimes that deal breaking is the proprietary, you know, fully internal routing, you know, proprietary stem handlebar thing, whatever, you know, that often, like people don't want to really be locked into that, as, yeah. at least as far as, you know, enthusiasts who are a little bit more, you know, educated and experienced. I mean, otherwise, yes, we all, we, I think we have very much come to the agreement that most everyday consumers don't care. They look at it, it looks sweet. It's super slick and clean and everything. They're fine with it until they maybe realize later on that yeah. not so good. The other issue with this, uh, the dual cabling system is that it inevitably is going to add some kind of complexity or a further level of complexity to the frame, which is either going to be represented in the cost or it's going to be represented in the weight. And all these bikes, you know, people are obs still obsessing about the grams on all of these bikes with internal cable routing. So, you know, adding 40 or 50 grams for the option of, of cabling that, you know, only maybe 10% people are going to use is perhaps not attractive for the brand to do. I mean, it's, it, well, yeah, it's also more proprietary parts that, like, let's say they come with the bike, customer loses these parts or gets thrown away with the manuals or something, and then they go to the bike shop and they're like, I want to put the other way, cable routing on this. And they're like, sorry, we don't have those parts, and the company doesn't have those anymore. Right. The days of just buying the you know trademark blue Shimano under BB cable guide are over. Yeah. But anyway, coming back to what we were just talking about, um, you know, Dave, I would almost challenge you a little bit on that in that. I guess the, the specialized Athos, I feel like, is a prime example of this. That's I really appreciate them with yeah, that bike. Yeah, because so specialized came out with this Athos. I think you know most of the people listening to this podcast, you know, they're familiar with this bike. It it's arrow nothing threaded bottom bracket. You know, no integrated proprietary anything. Twenty seven two seat post external seat post collar. Like it's as normal as could be. And because it is so light, and because it rides so well, and because it's so comfortable, and all the other stuff. People have been gobbling it up. They really appreciate it. They do not care that it doesn't have this other whiz-bang stuff. I feel like a lot of people are buying it specifically because it does not have that, which is really ironic because Specialized and all these other companies have been spending years pushing all these technologies that all of a sudden now there's this huge backlash against them. So what do they do? They come out with this product that doesn't have any of that stuff, and then people are gobbling it up. I mean, there's just like so few people that are actually road racing. So I think like, You'd be like, oh, you actually don't need all this aero stuff. You just want a bike that that rides really well up and down. Like it's just a really good no frills bike. Like that's the one. Yeah. yeah. But they they've gone they've gone backwards with that bike, right? They're not they're not creating like the they're not creating the tarmac. Um, you know, it's not a, an SOX tarmac which has integrated cabling and then they've gone, oh, we'll we'll allow you to put external cables on this SL tarmac, right? Because that would be a different bike. You'd be paying for all the complexity that they originally designed to have those cables internal. And you'd also be having the additional weight of that system to then not use it, 
right? It's it's I feel like it's it's a different thing here. It's it's actually just a different product altogether. It's not it's not offering both. It's just offering No, it's not one. offering both, but it makes me wonder like when I look at systems like that, when I look at what Allied has done, um, it, it comes across to me that it is not impossible to offer some sort of dual option. It is more complicated in terms of development, and it, it would certainly be more expensive to a certain degree. But to me, I still feel like if for, for educated consumers out there, I feel like they would still appreciate the option of doing one or the other based on what they want to do. I, based on what they want to do. I so like if would. you're buying one of these bikes, I would bet that everyone that gets pre-built and is a stock bike comes with fully internal cable routing. People aren't going to invest in buying a second fork, a whole different cockpit. No way. Like no one's, no way. this isn't like a, the two in one bike, you can swap it back and forth. Like it's not, people don't it's really not do that. that. Yeah. Like it is, however it's built initially is how it's going to stay. So to me, it's like, why not just, buy the bike that has the cable routing you want in the first place. Because you you almost can't do that anymore. Like it's really hard. To but get. that's where, to me, it's like the Athos is the production line bike of the, it's like a production the, custom, custom bike. the custom market. And so like if you don't like all the production bikes that are aero and internal and whatever, just buy a custom bike. Whether it's like a full custom geometry or just a small builder that is building tire, or steel, or even carbon bikes, like then you can get whatever cable routing you want. Right, like, you know, prime example, I mean, Ben, I, I apologize for picking on you like this, um, but there happens to be an Argonaut right in front of me here, and it is a round tube custom carbon fiber bike, you know, external cable riding, rim brake, mechanical drive. Actually, no, that's the no, ITU. Um, but anyway, it's still very normal. But objectively speaking, why would someone, like, as presume, you know, assuming the fit is okay, why would someone buy that over in Athos now? Because like, it's cool. It's the same reason why would someone buy $700 pulleys? No, I know. I, like, I, it's cool. I it. It's custom. But it's I'm, different but I'm colors. Just saying, a lot of the reasons why people would be gravitating toward bikes like that was because they could, you're, it's becoming harder to get stuff like that in a production mass market frame. I mean, by definition, yeah. you get a custom bike either because you just want to be different or because your needs can't be satisfied in what is already available off the shelf. Yeah, I mean, right. like Specialized is basically the only company doing this, though. Like, once Trek and Giant and the list of companies start doing this almost throwback bike model, like they're the only one. Yeah, I've I've said this on the podcast before, and I've thought about it a lot more. But Trek really needs to bring back Klein as a brand and do just so, so cool, so rad, yeah. so cool. Yeah. Anyway, please, Trek. Right. I would buy do one. It. I feel like with it, with 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 uh, similar paint jobs too. Yeah, oh, it'd be so good. So good. I mean, they have all these cool paint jobs in Project One. Just like make a really high-end aluminum frame and put those paint jobs yeah. on it. I mean, and I, don't I, don't charge two thousand dollars for the paint job, yeah. please. No. I mean, I, <laughs> I basically had my personal Allied um, Allied All Road painted like an old Klein. Yeah. Um, but you know, maybe I'm also just showing my age too. But anyway, all right. I feel like we've harped on this subject enough, and I know that we've brought this up before, but it just continues to be an issue because it just keeps coming up because it's still a thing. Yep. And I don't know it's how long it's going to be a thing, but it's not going to, yeah, it's not going to go away for quite a while. If maybe ever, we'll see. Anyway, let's move on to Ask a Mechanic. Let's do it. And I still feel like we need some sort of theme music for Ask a Mechanic and we don't have any. Not going to sing it. Hmm. Anyway. All right. Well, this week's Ask a Mechanic segment is once again brought to us by our Velo Club members. All these questions here are exclusively from our Velo Club Slack channel. So if you have not yet joined up with our Velo Club membership program, please consider doing so. There are lots of benefits aside from just moving to the front of the line for Ask a Mechanic. Look into it. Shoot. I think it's cyclingtips.com slash sign up. I believe it is. 
If Sounds not, right. If it's not that, it's there's a link on the site somewhere. Shame on me for not doing my research. Anyway. All right. First question. Uh, this is another name that I think I'm going to butcher. Uh, from UC Kekkonen. Definitely uh, butchered that. Probably, probably butchered it. Very likely. Uh, but anyway, UC would like to know, as these spare parts are hard to come by, how much are we supposed to lower our expectations? An example, he has, or she, uh, UC has an old Sora group set that is slowly disintegrating, and instead of replacing the broken parts, they've shortened the outer... They shorten the outer brake cable housing to have a rotten spot in the straight. Hmm. Anyway, they're compromising so that because they can't get old, uh, old parts. The shifters also need replacing and a more thorough overhaul. But as parts or whole shifters are hard to come by, I've cleaned, tightened, relube, and hope they work for a year. So how much are you supposed to just kind of keep things limping along? I mean, it's definitely an issue right now. I'm confused by the question with uh, shortening the brake housing that, and stuff. Yeah, like, that, that's a little bit, little bit odd. The that brake sounds- housing you should still be able to get. Yeah, um, but I mean, point being, I mean, as certainly as some of these parts get a lot older, I mean, you are starting to get real legitimate wear issues that are not repairable. I mean, Shimano road shifters, oftentimes that shifting kind of just starts to get gummed up when the original factory loop kind of gets, starts to get thickened up. And I think we've mentioned this before. You could kind of blast that out with a like a very strong solvent, usually like a like a disc brake cleaner, that sort of thing, and then relubing it. That oftentimes will kind of bring it back to life. Um, and then for anything that operates on cable and housing, new cable and housing does absolute wonders for making stuff work well again. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, I mean, this isn't necessarily like answering any questions specific to his bike, but like, it's definitely an issue right now with getting parts. Like I've had a couple of people where it's like, okay, your drivetrain is worn, but let's say the cassette or chain ring or whatever you have that specific one and that size is not available for a month. So it's like, okay, it's maybe not perfect right now, but it's not skipping yet. So let's just keep riding it until that part's available and then we'll swap stuff out um i'd say there's definitely more of that going on more more broadly speaking i'd say this is really a personal issue of like you know how much are you bothered by these things you know like does does your your shifting that isn't quite perfect does that actually bother you like some people are very unaware of how bad their bikes work right um you know we've all worked in shops and people have come in they're like oh you know there's uh my front brake doesn't work you're like you realize only three of your 10 gears work right you've got three you know you've got frayed cables there's six creaks in your bike your rear wheel's about to fall off yeah but you're worried about your front brake um yeah so i think this is you know a very personal issue that you know it really depends on how much stuff that's bothers you personally i would say if you're having to think about it every ride and it's annoying you and it's ruining your ride, then that's probably a time to to look to replace these things and do whatever you can to to move on and, and make your riding happy again. Like your bike shouldn't be shouldn't be annoying you on a ride. It should just be letting you do your ride. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, in a broad in a broad answer is like that's how long you should keep things going on for is to the point that you can't service them anymore and they start to annoy you. That's the time you need to replace them. Hmm. It would be nice if bike parts availability was it would normal. Be. That it would, would be, be nice because, like, right now I need a I need a new nine speed cassette for my townie and no good, nope. really yeah. nothing. No, nope. pretty, pretty hard to find. Are these certainly not? In the I mean, I'd, like I would say for me, like it's maybe the ideal parts aren't available, but for the most part, I can still get by. So, like, maybe say like Shimano chains aren't available, but I can get a KMC chain or something like that. Or same with brake pads. Like you're not using maybe the the identical replacement, but you're using yeah, you're using something that will continue to be rideable right. and still function. Right. Hmm. All right. Next question from Nolan Rogers. 
Is now a good time to jump into electronic drivetrains, or do we see development coming thick and fast in the near future? Uh, somewhat moot right now with parts availability, as we just said, yep. <laughs> um, but it would be good to know whether I should keep on my mechanical Altegra bike for a few more years or whether I should start saving. I mean, that's kind of the same thing that Dave was just saying. Like, does your mechanical shifting annoy you? Are you, is your ride not as nice because you're having to push and pull a cable or are you just like, oh, I want the latest, greatest. Right. I mean, the, the sad fact of the matter is that the way the bike industry is going right now, we act, we absolutely have really no real level of confidence that things aren't going to be obsoleted in a certain number of years or be completely different in a few number of years just because something is quote unquote better. Um, I will say that mechanical Altegra, especially when it's tuned right and has good cable and housing is awesome Works stuff. really, it's really well. Great. Um, if you want electronic shifting, um, electronic shifting, when it's, when it's working well, works better. I mean, the shifting is amazing. I would say, I wouldn't necessarily even say that it works better. I would say that it works better for longer. Like it's without, more without requiring anything like mechanical, mechanical shifting when things are kept up and cables are fresh and things are, yeah, just maintained that works really, really well. Sure. And I would say like, I mean, I've got a bike with mechanical Durace on it and then also electronic stuff and like it i would in my opinion i think the mechanical stuff shifts faster um but that's also my bike that i'm maintaining and keeping the cables well lubed and fresh and everything like where electronic will just keep plugging away yeah. at the same yeah. rate most most people are reactive when it comes to servicing mechanical right they'll they'll wait until something goes wrong until the cable is fraying and then they react and service it whereas yeah, I guess the way to keep mechanical running perfectly is to, you know, routinely service it, you know, just put new cables in every six months, whatever it is. Mechanical from when it's ever, everything's fresh, it's like slowly getting worse. So like a lot of times people don't even notice that it's getting worse until until the cable snaps off on their shifter or like the bottom bracket cable guide is so gummed up that you can't physically pull the cable. Right. And then um, you set up, then you fix your bike with all new stuff and they're like, oh my God, this yeah, is amazing. Exactly. Anyway, Nolan, point being... The stuff that you have now works great and will likely continue to work great for a very long time with proper service and maintenance. But if you have been curious and if you wanted to upgrade to electronic, I would just go ahead and do it mainly because we, we really have no guarantee of anything that's going to be around for a long time. We have no guarantee that mechanical Altegra is going to be around for a long time either. So, I mean, I would just make an assumption that whatever electronic group sets are out right now are going to be obsolete in five years. Like, I, I was actually going to say the other thing, uh, uh, something different, which is that we're kind of at a mature stage for the technology now. And I don't actually see the existing technology. Like if you buy a 2021 bike now, I don't see that being redundant in five years. I think the brands will offer support of it moving forward. I think there's enough of this product now. It's mainstream enough that they kind of have to keep some sort of support going. We'll see. I don't hold Maybe. my breath. Yeah, We'll see. True. We'll see who's right. Particularly Shimano. Like, right, they've had... They've had eTube for all of their DI2 stuff for the last however many years. And now there's this new Durace that's potentially half wireless or maybe we don't really know, but like that'll trickle down to Altegra and then that's not going to work with the current stuff. So we'll see. Who knows? Yeah, Who no knows? one knows. Next question from Robert Hest. How wide will road tires get? We've seen the quote standard unquote road tire steadily increase in width from 21 millimeters all the way to 28 to 28, 30 millimeters today. Will road tires continue to get wider or are we at terminal road bike uh, road tire width? 
Well, James, you you put drop bars on your fat bike, didn't you? And you have seen you trim the knobs off that. Oh, yeah. you're, yeah. you're way yeah, ahead yeah. of the curve. Uh, yeah. Robert, I will say from prior experience, I personally feel like things are going to stabilize where they are right now with you know what we what a lot of people consider like you know an all road tire size, yeah. mainly because essentially the tire size the tire, the road tire width that we are settling on now is what I was riding 30 years ago already. Like when I started road riding. It was right when road wheels were changing from 27 inch to 700 C. And you know, I mean, back then I was riding, and this is very normal, a 27 by inch and an eighth tire, which is about 28, 30 millimeters or so, depending on rim width. And that, that was very much the norm. Um, and it was right around that time when you, know, you, did, you did have availability of narrower stuff. But that was a very normal size for all of the reasons that people are using them now is because, you know, they're comfortable, they work well, they have a lot of grip, and so on and so forth. Um, so I personally feel like we're pretty stable. Yeah. Uh, and I think if you look at professional racing at the moment, I think that's that's kind of proof that things aren't going to change drastically from here. Because for the last five years, we've known that wider tires, you know, more comfortable and, and potentially lower rolling resistance and all that. But the majority of pro riders are still on 25s, a few are on 28s, but you don't really see wider than that unless they're racing in the classics. Uh, and I think by now we would have seen that move if if it was uh, if there was actually benefit to it. Yeah. Um, like anything over a 30 mil starts to not feel like a road tire anymore. Yep. Like a road, I should I would, should specify a road racing tire. Right. Like a gravel bike is still a road bike. Like you're riding it on roads. They just happen to not be paved. So it's like, what's your definition of a road bike? But like an actual like proper road racing bicycle, I would say twenty eight to thirty is for sure the max. Yep, I would agree. Yep, and and then yeah, as soon as you start talking about mixed terrain or road bikes, gravel bikes, and that completely changes the question. But road bikes, I think we have stabilized. All right, next question from Rob Wierzbowski. Uh Rob loves to see a clean stem, preferably slammed, all capital letters. Uh, how safe is it to run your stem with a flush top cap with no spacers above? And he lists a few different types of clamps, like a cutout uh, that sort of like what FSA uses, uh, a stem with no cutout, like a Richie Superlogic or NV Aero stem, um, and then also bolts that clamp kind of more toward the bottom half of the steerer tube, usually for stems that allow for some sort of internal steerer routing, like an FSA, ACR, specialized vents, that sort of thing. Um, are there considerations for each? And how about when a stem is longer or when you have a bigger or heavier rider when there's more leverage? Uh, what are some stem, stem setup tips to give us the highest confidence in our equipment? I mean, personally, I always like running a five or two and a half mil spacer on top, but like, I just like that flexibility and knowing that it's full surface area yeah. contact. But I think I would say like, as long as the steer tube is going above the upper bolt on the stem, then I would say that you're probably safe. Um, like, cause a lot of, I've seen people where they slam their stem and cut the steer themselves or whatever, take it somewhere. And basically this top, top bolt just not clamping against anything. And it's like, that's not safe at all. The stem's actually pinching the top of the top, the top yeah. of the steerer. Yeah, yep. totally. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of top caps and the compression plug that's in the steer tube that like how those contact each other, um, make it more difficult to achieve that with not having a spacer on top because the, the top cap will bottom out on the compression plug. So you're having to run the compression plug like five mil below where you want it essentially. So like to have it, the stem slammed and cut, maybe that top of the steer tube is below the, the stem bolt. So I kind of, I would say it kind of depends on what the combination of 
uh, compression plugin and top cap you're running. Yeah, I mean, my, my preferred setup would be to have the steerer just barely poking up above the stem so that you have full contact. Um, Wolf Tooth and I think a few other companies make headset top caps that have sort of like a bit of steer, or sort of a, a bit of headset spacer built into it so that you don't have to run a separate spacer. It still makes for a very clean look. Um, and then I personally prefer to run essentially like the longest compression plug that I can find. Pro makes one that's really good that's 50 mils long. Um, there are other companies that, other steer tubes that I like that use like a bonded in aluminum plug, that sort of thing. Um, that's personally my preference. Yeah, I think that's a big thing if, you're, if we're talking about safety and, and ensuring that the stem is clamping the steerer tube as correctly as possible. It's just, uh, yeah, emphasizing that that compression plug using a long one is, is really key here. All right, moving on to the next question. I like this one. Uh, it comes from Mark Terhorst. Are threaded bottom brackets really the answer to all of our problems or does it also come down to tolerances? Threaded bottom brackets can creak as well if A, not installed in a well-built frame, and or B, not installed with proper grease or torque. No, nope. Mark, yeah, Mark, you are absolutely... Threaded bottom brackets solve correct. all of the world's issues. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the thing that I... Threaded bottom brackets are not inherently perfect. There are issues with thread quality. There are issues with the you know, bottom bracket sh shell still needing to be, you know, still having to be properly faced on the outer, um, you know, have, have the outer edges be parallel to each other. Um, and they have to be installed properly, all that stuff. All that stuff needs to be, needs, needs to apply. But for me, what is nice about threaded bottom brackets is that you can have all those things. Whereas with a press fit bottom bracket, you know, try calling any shop in the country to see who has equipment to properly ream a, press fit 30 shell to you know, to make it round and have it everything be you know be in alignment like it, it doesn't exist well, even if it exists you no shop is going to have it the the tools exist but they're like 800 dollars for the reaming tools and you're not and that's a wear tool so you have to maintain that you probably only get like 10 10 frame cuts out of that 800 dollars before you have to then get it sharpened so you just can't get a return on investment with those tools which is why no one invests in them right but with a threaded bottom bracket you have more tolerance. Um, I mean, those, even if that shell, it is certainly possible that that shell, especially in a carbon frame, may be slightly out of parallel. Um, I feel like you can get away with that more with a threaded external bearing bottom bracket, however. You, you seem to have a little bit more wiggle room to, to get those to work properly. You have more freedom as far as, um, you know, what sort of bearing you stick in there. You just have more options there. You have more options as far as using grease or thread retaining compound in the cups when you install it in the frame. You just have more flexibility to make more possibility, more chances to get that right as opposed to a press fit frame. Yeah, I mean, with a thread, if the if the bore is too large, you can basically fix it with like Teflon tape, right? Like plumber's tape effectively fixes the issue as, as good as anything else. If the bore is too small, then a lot of shops do have the reaming and facing tools to to fix that thread. Whereas, yeah, as you say with press fit, if the if the bore is too small, then you need a shop that has invested all that crazy amount of money in the specific tools required for that press fit standard. And then if the bore is too large, well, yeah, shit out of luck. Yeah. I mean, my I would say like in terms of a creaky thread bottom bracket, most of the time it's a bike that came from a factory and just doesn't have any grease in the threads. Like it just needs pulled apart, cleaned and re-greased and then it will be quiet. So, but yeah, I, I guess to answer the original questions, everything can be, everything it can be made poorly. 
Yeah. Everything can be made poorly, but generally speaking, everything can be made poorly, but generally speaking, the answer to that question is yes. Um, at least related to bottom bracket. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, next question. Uh, we'll just do a couple more and then we'll wrap up for today from Jeremy Hammond. Uh, for Shimano Altegra 105 GRX 800 and XT level drivetrains, what is your recommended part for replacement of jockey wheels in the rear derailleur? Uh, he's looking for serviceability and comparable performance slash sound. Should you go with stock Shimano or something else for some color or bling? Yeah, absolute black would be the way to go. Yeah, um, no question. <laughs> I mean, I would go with the stock unless you're wanting to upgrade to like a maybe not oversized, but like a ceramic speed or some other company's ceramic. Uh, same size pulleys, but I mean the stock Shimano ones are. You can still They're service it. It's just the same thing as a ceramic speed. You can. It's a sealed bearing that you can pop the seals off and flush out and regrease. Yeah, the one. Well, the the one thing I would recommend is to stick with a plastic pulley wheel instead of a, an aluminum one, um, just because aluminum ones shockingly wear faster than plastic ones in my experience, and they're also quite a bit louder. Yeah, the titanium ones. It's 3D printed titanium. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Uh, but as far as bearings and everything go, I, I, I personally have been quite happy with the Enduro XD15 stuff. If you are concerned about bearing durability, uh, it is a hybrid ceramic bearing, but they use a, a special cryogenically treated steel for the races that's proven to be just stupidly durable. Um, it's, it's like practically indestructible, so you'll wear out the plastic before the bearing wears out. And they're a little bit pricey, but not like not like a... I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're cheaper than a ceramic speed or something like that, so... That would be my option if I'm going to go for something aftermarket. Yeah, I would say if you're sticking with Shimano, uh, I actually think it is worth, or Shimano or SRAM or, or Campagnolo, whatever whatever drivetrain you're, you're on, I think it is worth actually spending the money to get the higher level pulley wheels. So say if, you're, if you've got 105 or if you've got an Altegra drivetrain, uh, I know they're a lot more expensive, but getting a Durace pulley wheel actually does have some benefit. It rolls a lot smoother uh, and the bearing will last longer. Um, it's better sealed as well. So... Not always, but I think it's it's a, it's a cheap little upgrade to bring a little extra performance to your drivetrain. Yeah, I would say the only thing with that is sometimes the diameter of the bolt. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Naturally, naturally. All right, last question from John Irvine. This is actually something that I've been pondering for a while um, and not just related to this very specific topic, but John is asking if anyone has studied the time gained advantages with disc brakes versus time lost from a long wheel change. Uh, I am not aware of anyone running that study, um, but it calls into question sort of the the pros and cons of various, I guess, marginal gains, if you want to call them that, with, with road racing in general, um, just in the sense that, you know, yes, a lighter weight tire may be faster in terms of rolling resistance, but if you flat and you lose two minutes in a wheel change, or even 30 seconds in a wheel change, most of those advantages are wiped out. So I've always wondered, what if you are able to run a setup with it, you know, whether it be like, I don't know, say tubeless with sealant or whatever. Like what if you were to just always run the more dependable setup that you know will have a much higher probability of not having an issue? Um, you know, certainly there's an actuary out there who can, who can run these numbers for us, but I have always been curious about that specific topic. There's always a, a question where the answer is it depends, right? I mean, it like it's always going to be. They're talking about wheel changes, so I would assume that they're talking about the pro racing that we're watching on TV. Yes. Like, your average local race, you're not going to be running, like, course of speeds or something that's really paper thin because there isn't a follow car to get view wheel change. Um, Except people do And I would say, like, most pro races, 
the road conditions are pretty good. So you're going to run a high performance tire because you're not, you're not going into it expecting to get a flat. So like, but flat, like you can flat, you let's say you have gator skins and you're racing in the tour. Like you can still get a flat. Um, but I would say like in terms of wheel, sp- uh, wheel swap time losses, I guess, is what like I would say like as someone who has done race mechanicing and change wheels fast and whatever, like you can mess up both a rim brake or a disc brake one. I'd say disc is inherently a little bit slower, but it can still be done really effectively and fast and, and smoothly, or you can just do a whole bike change. Um, but there's like previous to disc brakes, there's however many videos of people changing wheels in the tour or wherever race and really just struggling totally botched with it. rim brake, like rim brake. Cause you have lawyer tabs on the front, especially well, it used to be able to file them off, but then the UCI made that not a rule, but, um, like you can still really mess up a rim brake wheel change. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that, uh, I think a lot of teams actually do consider this. They, they go in with a strategy for this based on the race or the stage that, you know, how easy is it going to be to have uh, mechanic access to the riders? How long is the rider going to have to wait in the event of a flat? Where are they going to flat? You know, they go and do these course, uh, they go and check out the course and, and figure out where the risks are and, and they will actually occasionally select uh, component choices based on, you know, whether the fact that the road's too narrow to get a follow car in there, then, you know, they just will take the slower option to ensure that the rider can keep going. Um, not all teams do this, but I, I do know some of the larger teams factor this into their into their theories. Talking about larger, like the bigger teams that are more organized and have good mechanics, like they're practicing fast wheel changes. It's not like they're just working on the bikes at night and then happen to change a wheel every once in a while in the race. Like they're practicing fast wheel changes all the time to stay fresh and like have the technique dialed and just, yeah, right. if you can do it really well. Or if you're Israel, or if you're Israel startup nation at the Tour de France, you just like Chris Fume, you just like Chris from run. Go for a walk. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what stage was that again? I don't remember, I don't but know. that was bad. Uh, but what I would say, like the, the question actually reminded me of a uh, downhill racing, which is, um, Greg Minar, when he won the world championships in his hometown in South Africa, um, he actually purposely ran really lightweight tires knowing that they'd give him a performance advantage. And he knew on the last drop into the finish line that there's a rock that he hits that would puncture those lightweight tires. So that he like he actually took the gamble thinking he could get through the rest of the course, puncture in the final straight and cross the finish line with a puncture and because of the lighter tires, he'd have the advantage on like what was more of a pedally course. Dude exactly, you know, like went to plan, right? Like he he crossed the line with the with the puncture and got the win. So I mean, <laughs> there is, you know, there are riders at this level that kind of understand these risks and understand these compromises and and take that risk. I mean, that's like, yeah, teams basically picking like Minar, like team like on the road, teams are picking, okay, we're gonna use this wheel set and this bike because this is the section in the race where it's going to make the biggest difference. Like the rest of the course could be flat, but let's say there's this one punchy section that they're going to be like, okay, this is where the gaps are going to be made. So you're going to give you this light setup. Yeah, it, it depends. And I, yeah, I think to answer the question is there's probably no way of doing this study. No, not really. I mean, you could like take an average of every, every wheel change ever made, yeah. but like have fun watching Tour de France right, and race right. tapes from the last however many decades. And I guess either way, it doesn't really matter now because it's yeah. becoming a moot issue because... Yep. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's even, all disc. Even Yumbo is, is starting to switch over now and, you know, Pogaccio was on disc brake most, for most of the stages and really the only holdout now is Ineos. So it's just... Yeah, I mean, if you have a rim brake in the a pro bike race now, 
and get it flat. Like you're going to have a slower wheel change because like you have to wait for your team car to come with a proper wheel and they probably have like a mismatch of disc and rim brake stuff. So then the mechanic is like digging out to find the rim brake wheel rather than just being like, okay, you're all on disc. It's all this time. Right. They've got, yeah, I've seen, I've seen some of the teams that were on mixed wheels in the past have actual charts on the back of the colored charts on the back of the seat where the mechanic sits to tell them, you know, number, number number 10 has rim brake, right? And it's like, so he knows, you know, if, if that comes over the race radio that, you know, rider 10 is, it's like, he knows which wheel to grab, but it just adds a a whole nother level of complexity. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think, I think, uh, some other teams, uh, are also just preventing flats now that they're on discs. I know, say Israel that we mentioned, they had initially gone all disc brake, which funnily enough, they've kind of gone back on that. They've given all their riders rim brake bikes now as well. Um, but they, uh, this is an article I've done in the past. They're actually all running um, tubular sealant inside their tubulars to, yeah, totally. to ensure that they can just keep rolling along. So, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done that for races that I've worked because I'm like, I don't want to have to deal with deal with yeah. changing a flat. Like, I'm just going to put a little bit of sealant on these tires yep. and then take like take that risk away. Yeah. So yeah, there there are strategies that they're they you know the disc brake change might be slower, but there's ways to solve for it. Right. And at this point, it. teams have been running disc brakes for long enough that they've really figured out they've got it this they've got the process pretty well dialed at this point. So I don't yeah. really think it's much of an issue anymore. No. So all right. Well, that will wrap up this week's episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so using whatever service you use to get your podcasts. Uh, I know I've mentioned this already, but if you have not already become a Velo Club member, please consider doing so for a variety of reasons because it does support what we do here at Cycling Tips. Uh, And maybe most importantly, please tell your friends about the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast because we like it when more people are listening to us. And I guess it just, just kind of gives us more things to talk about and it gives us more comments and, you know, kind of more fuel for discussion. So anyway, thanks again for listening as always. And we will see you with the deep dive episode next week. Bye-bye. Deep dive. Deep dive. Deep dive.